This morning, we are back in our series on Revelation. So you can pull out the Bible and uh, have that open. This morning, we are in Revelation chapter 11. And in fact, today, we come to uh, really the, pretty much the halfway point in this book, in Revelation. Uh, chapter 11 is, is more or less the, the middle point of the book. And uh, you kind of have this experience. You get to Revelation 11 and you, and you, and you come over the, the crest of the mountain, you feel like it's already been a mountain so far to get here, and we get to this little plateau and realize the summit is actually still quite a way away. We've still got to get to chapter 22, so there's still a bit of ground to cover, but it's worth taking stock of the fact that in Revelation, we've already traveled a huge distance. Uh, we've come through some very bumpy territory, and we've seen some amazing visions, and we've seen incredible things unfolding, and some disturbing things as well. But well done for hanging in there especially those of you that have been right through the series. You know, we've, we've got about halfway, we've got about halfway to go, so we kind of just steady ourselves now for the next climb. But let me just encourage you to keep on hanging in there. Stick with it. I know it's quite a long journey, but I think it'll be a fruitful one if you, if you allow it to happen and allow uh, this book to really get inside you and, uh, and work its way out. So stay with it. Keep reading. Keep chewing the stuff over in your life groups, uh, in your families and all sorts of conversations, keep working away at it. It's, it's like the woman's marathon, you know, you can't let yourself drift too far behind. You've got to stay with the pack, you know. The, the, the further you let yourself drift, the harder it is to catch up, all right? That, I, that is the only Olympic metaphor I will be using all morning. Now I'm done. Okay, Revelation chapter 11. Here we go. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshippers. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, many from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts, because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. The third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. 
And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. Okay, interesting passage. Now, the first half of this chapter, which is really what I want to focus on today, the first half of this chapter, up to about verse 14, is a self-contained story in Revelation. It's like a little unit placed in there all of its own. It's got its own characters, it's got its own storyline, it's got its own structure. It is a little story. And the best way to think about this story in chapter 11 is not to think about it as a literal series of events that are one day going to happen in the future, but to think of it as a parable. Treat this story in Revelation 11 exactly the same way that you would treat one of Jesus' parables if you'd come across it in the Gospels. Think about it in the same sense. This is not a literal description of end times events. This is a description of present realities. This is a symbolic presentation of things that were going on in John's day and things that are continuing to go on in our day, which makes it a lot more relevant than if it was just a future prediction about a far-off time. So the story revolves around these two guys who are called the two witnesses. And the first question then, I guess, is well, who are these blokes? Who are these two witnesses? What's their story? Well, there's a couple of clues here. In verse 4, these two witnesses are called the two lampstands. Now, in Revelation, lampstands are consistently used as a reference to the church. You remember back in chapter 1, the seven lampstands representing the seven churches. Jesus explicitly says these seven lampstands represent the seven churches that this letter is addressed to. So there's a big clue as to the identity of the witnesses right there. The lampstands always represent churches or the church. And then that description of the witnesses as lampstands is coupled with this idea that they are also two olive trees. And these ideas come together and draw out a vision going back to the prophet Zechariah. And Zechariah 4, Zechariah sees this vision of a lampstand with two olive trees. And the oil from the olive trees is being poured into the base of the lamps to keep the lamps burning. That's why they're so connected, because you need oil from the olive trees to power the lamps. And in Zechariah, we get this connection between the oil of the, of the olive trees, the oil that's powering the lamps, and the Holy Spirit. It's where that verse is, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's the context of that verse in the vision of the olive trees and the lampstands. So the oil is the, the spirit of God that's being used to power the lamps. The lamps somehow represent the churches. And then you have the role of these two guys, which is described as being witnesses. Their role is to prophesy, to speak Fourth, not prophesy in terms of fortune telling, in terms of speaking about the future, but prophesying in terms of speaking forth the message or the word of God. So you put all this together, I think the most natural way of thinking about these witnesses is that they represent the church, the church in the present age. Or more specifically, they represent the church empowered by the Holy Spirit in its role as a witness to the world. Let me say that again. These two witnesses represent the church empowered by the Holy Spirit 
for its role as a witness to the world, a witness before the nations, a witness of the kingdom of God. So these two prophets represent and symbolize the witnessing church, the church as it's called to be part of God's mission in the world. Now I know there's a few blank faces. That sounds a bit strange because there's two of them. So what's the story here? Did the church split? Are there two churches? Have they had a fight? What's happened here? Two witnesses. Well, this goes back to a Jewish tradition around legal proceedings. And Jesus himself referenced this tradition in John 8, where he says the testimony of two witnesses is trustworthy. In a Jewish court of law, for a testimony to be considered valid and verified, it took at least two witnesses. That's why there's two of them, because the testimony of the church is true, because the testimony of the church is trustworthy. So don't get thrown off by the idea that there's two of them. They don't represent two different things. The two witnesses together represent one reality, which is the church in its role as a witness, a witnessing church, a witnessing community. There's two of them simply to emphasize the fact that as the church witnesses to the reality of the kingdom, to the reality of Jesus, its witness is trustworthy. It's a real message that is real truth. It's authentic and it's verified truth that we have to proclaim. That's the idea behind the two witnesses. And the length of time that these witnesses are called to witness for or prophesy for is 1,260 days. How many years is that? Anybody, anybody? Three and a half. Three and a half years. Three and a half is half of seven. Seven in Revelation is a number of completion or perfection or totality. Three and a half refers to a temporary time a limited time, a restricted time. What's in view here is not the full sweep of human history. It's the age between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. That's the time within which the church is called to witness or prophesy. Okay, so that's what's in view here. The church empowered by the Spirit, we're talking about the age of the church, which is the age we're in now, in which the church is anointed and empowered by the Spirit to bear God's name and be God's witness before the nations. Okay, we're tracking so far? So it's a temporary period of time. And that means it's, it, it, this is happening now. I mean, this is us, right? This is our time. This is our age. We're in the 1,260 days. It's not a literal number. It's a symbolic number, as all numbers are in Revelation. We are in this period of time now. We are the witnesses. We're in the story. And this is our moment on stage this is the point in the book where we suddenly realize this is not just a story about external history happening out there. We are called to play the role of these two witnesses in the world. We are called to bear God's name and speak God's truth before a watching world. We are the two witnesses, individually and together. Now I know as soon as we talk about witnessing there's a whole series of connotations. Think of what comes to your mind when you think about witnessing. You think about the street corner preacher standing on his soapbox preaching hellfire and brimstone or someone bowling up to someone they don't know on the street and going through a gospel track. That tends to be what we associate with the idea of witnessing. When we come to this passage, really we need to try and purge our minds of the connotations that witnessing has absorbed within our culture and within our Christian subculture. Because revelation has a different way of using this word. And the starting point for thinking about witnessing and being a witness in revelation is Jesus. One of the titles that Jesus has in revelation is the true and faithful witness. 
He is the witness that we are called to emulate. So everything that we say and think about witnessing should simply be our attempt to emulate Jesus. He, he's, he was the true witness. Now, what did witnessing mean for Jesus? Well, it wasn't just about street corner preaching, surely. It certainly wasn't about just going through a gospel tract with somebody. Witnessing was Jesus' whole life. Witnessing was the totality of what Jesus, who Jesus was. It was his whole being, word and deed. Jesus was a living signpost to the kingdom of God. This completely new reality, this new way of being right with God and one another. This new way of being human that Jesus was bringing about through his life, through his teaching, through his miracles, ultimately through his death. Jesus testified to and witnessed to this thing he described as the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Or in John, it's referred to as eternal life. Same thing. It's this new relational reality where relationships with God, with self, with one another, even with creation, are restored and reconciled through the work of Jesus. This is what Jesus came to show us. He talked about the kingdom all the time. You don't need to read far in the Gospels to see that. He described the kingdom in parables, in straightforward teaching. He talked about what life in the kingdom was like, what it was like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, what it was like to be renewed in relationship with God and others, this new social reality that was coming about on earth. And he also embodied the kingdom, didn't he? He demonstrated it. He didn't just talk about the kingdom, but he lived it. To see Jesus was to see the kingdom close up in flesh. It was to see a vision of what reconciled humanity looks like. To see Jesus exercising incredible compassion. To see him crossing over cultural boundaries, social boundaries, religious boundaries, boundaries of clean and unclean, boundaries of law-keeping and not law-keeping, crossing all of these taboos in order to literally touch others and reach people, and minister grace and reconciliation. That's the kingdom of God. That's what you're seeing in the life and the deeds and the actions of Jesus, the kingdom of God coming on earth. As Jesus exercises radical love, as he exercises uh, what we've called lamb power, strength through weakness, strength through self-giving and self-sacrificing, even being prepared to be crucified. In fact, in Jesus' death on the cross, we see the ultimate act of witness, we see the true and faithful witness, a living testimony, even on the cross, to the reality of the kingdom of God, the extravagant love of the Father, and the Father's willingness to forgive the most rebellious, human, sinful person because of the faithfulness of the Son. It's the kingdom of God opening up before our eyes. All of that, it's a very holistic idea, this witness that Jesus had. So, for us... Come back to this question. What does it mean for us to be witnesses? It means nothing less than to emulate the life of Jesus, the true and faithful witness. And in some ways, that's harder than just standing on a street corner and preaching. Because even though that might be terrifying to do, it's still a limited time and a limited place, isn't it? It's still a task that you can go and do and then be done with it. But witnessing is not that. Witnessing is more than that. Witnessing is our lives. Witnessing is the holistic sense of being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and living that out faithfully before God and before others. Witnessing is not just something we do. It is who we are. Walking in the steps of these two witnesses is a 24-7 thing. It's all of our life. It's being a living, breathing signpost to the kingdom of heaven. 
coming about on earth. It's exactly what John wanted of his original audience, his original hearers of Revelation. That he wanted them in the midst of this empire that venerated Caesar as Lord, talked about Caesar as the Son of God. He wanted his uh, readers, these churches, to proclaim boldly that Jesus is Lord. Jesus deserves the glory, the honor, the power, the wisdom, the strength, the might, the majesty. He's the one that those titles should go to, not Caesar. Uh, John wants his, his, his churches in the midst of an empire that glorified greed and glorified self-promotion and glorified bloodshed and military might. He wanted his, his followers to demonstrate lamb power, strength in weakness and self-giving love and a commitment to the other and the welfare of others outside of themselves. And in the midst of this empire that told a compelling story about life that gave meaning to everybody, the Pax Romana, the peace that Rome had brought to the earth, John wants his readers to live and tell a different story, the story of the the Pax Christi, the peace of Christ that has come, the peace on earth that Jesus has brought, which looks categorically different to the peace that Rome has brought at the end of a sword. John's wanting his readers to be living witnesses to a different reality right in the midst of the empire that they find themselves. This is the same calling that we have today. In the midst of the empires and ideologies and structures and systems of power that we find ourselves in, we are called to be a church of witness, to live lives of witness to a different Lord, to a different reality, to a different kingdom, to a different allegiance, a different way of being human, a way of being truly human that's wrapped up in being the true and faithful witness. I was talking last week to Dave Simpson, who did our communion devotion this morning, and uh, he was telling me that a couple of weeks ago he was with his daughter in Pack and Save, and it was Dave's birthday coming up. I think it was your 40th, wasn't it, Dave? Yeah, four, I just want to be careful there. 40th, okay, got that right. It was Dave's 40th coming up, and it was also Pack and Save's 40th, funnily enough. And there were all these signs up at Pack and Save about Pack and Save's 40th birthday. So Dave thought it would be funny to take a photo of the Pack and Save 40th birthday sign with him in the photo. You were in the photo, weren't you? I should try and get my story straight. So Dave was trying to take a photo of himself with, this, with the sign, and a security guard came up and was not very impressed with the fact that Dave was taking photos in Pack and Save. And uh, he demanded that Dave delete some photos. And, uh, and then even the one that he let Dave keep, he wanted to trot Dave off to the manager of the store to check the photo out to see if he was actually allowed to keep the photo. Now, Dave had his daughter with him. And as he told me the story, he was very conscious of the fact that his daughter was present with him and was watching how he responded to that situation. And in a lot of ways, he was probably tempted to get a bit grumpy and be quite annoyed at the security guard for being pedantic and get a bit aggro, and get a bit stroppy. But he was conscious that his life was a witness to his daughter, and that she was observing something in him that would teach her about how her father and how adults responded to these kinds of situations. And his desire was to model to her something different, to model the way of the kingdom, to model the way of Jesus. And that's what he did. See, Dave in that moment was witnessing to his daughter, not, not street corner preaching. We've got to get away from that connotation. Living a life of witness before his daughter. We witness to our children, don't we? We witness to the children in our church. Now that our primary kids are in for more of our worship, you know they're watching you as we worship. 
You know, they're sitting in these seats now watching you. So what are they witnessing? People that are disinterested? People that are indifferent? Or are they witnessing people that are engaged with Jesus, worshipping him and modelling the way of the kingdom? They're penetrating questions, aren't they? It'd be so much easier just to stand on a street corner and tell people stuff. But we are called to live lives of witness, to be witnesses to those around us. When people in your workplace see you modeling different standards and behaviors, a diligent work ethic, integrity, refusing maybe to make particular compromises that others are, they are seeing a witness to a different way of being human, the way of the kingdom. When people see you exercising forgiveness when you've been wounded, instead of seeking retribution, to exercise forgiveness and reconciliation because you're walking in the way of the Lamb. They're seeing something different. They're seeing a life of witness. People are looking. People are watching. People are noticing. What are they seeing in your life? If your life looks no different to the world around you, you have nothing to offer the world. At some point, We have to model the way of Jesus, the life of witness in the kingdom of heaven, emulating the true and faithful witness. Often in this regard, people quote the words of uh, St. Francis of Assisi, who said, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. It's a great quote. And it just speaks to the importance of allowing our lives, our whole lives, to be a witness to others, that they're seeing the kingdom of heaven close up in us. People that love Jesus and love others and work out the values and priorities of the kingdom, just as we go about the ordinariness of life. But I like to put next to that quote from St. Francis, another quote by another saint, St. Paul, St. Paul of Tarsus. You might have heard of him. He wrote a few verses in the Bible. And he said this in Romans chapter 10. And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Now, I don't think that negates what St. Francis said, but I think it means that we need both. Because I think what Paul is saying in this passage is that our lives are incredibly important, but they're not enough. Because you could live a life as a, as a fantastic Muslim, And it's still not going to bring people to Jesus. It is deed and word that have to go together. And sooner or later, we've got to be prepared as witnesses to actually say the name Jesus to people. Sooner or later, we've got to be prepared to actually tell people about Jesus. I'm not saying that's all we should do, but I'm saying it is a whole package It is our words and our deeds that go together to form the life of witness. There's a girl that I studied with at AUT called Emily. She was in my study group or tutorial group in the first semester I was there. She was never particularly interested in Christian things, um, but we often went out for coffee as a group each week, and so I had a few conversations with her. And somehow, I don't quite know how it happened, but somehow around Easter that year, I gave her a copy of the Jesus film which was a film about the life of Jesus, and it has a little thing at the end about how to have a relationship with Jesus. And I gave that to her to watch, and uh, she didn't seem particularly grateful for that, uh, but she said that she'd take it, and she was polite about it. She was very gracious about it, and that was that. I never really followed up very well, I'm embarrassed to say. I just sort of stumbled along, and I, I don't remember having much of a conversation with her after that. 
And then during the break between semesters that year, I got a phone call from another one of uh, my fellow students to say that Emily had been in a car crash and had been killed. And uh, at her funeral, those of us who were studying with her at AUT, we were invited to literally sit up on the stage, on the floor of the stage, around her coffin, which was an eerie experience to be a part of a funeral in that proximity. And I just wondered, you know, what, what had happened? Uh, had anything shifted in her heart? Had that film made any difference? Where was her heart with God in those last days, moments of her life? And I didn't have any of those answers. I don't know. But that experience really brought me face to face with the absolute vital importance of talking to people about Jesus and telling people the good news about Jesus because it is good news. And I know it's hard to talk about and I know it feels a bit awkward and I know we're often a bit embarrassed about it and it might be a bit socially uncomfortable, but we have this precious gospel, this good news, and alongside our lives of faithful witness, we're called to tell people about Jesus, to share our stories with them of the change that Jesus has made in our lives, to tell God's story of reconciliation through Jesus and invite people into it, to be intentional with the people that you know. Who are the people in your life that you know, who don't know Jesus? Are you intentional with those relationships? Are you praying for those people? Are you bringing those people by name before God, looking for the opportunities, ordinary ways, not not pushing, not being forceful, not being aggressive, not being hostile, but just taking the opportunities, stepping into the moments that God gives you to say a word, to speak a word, and to allow your life of witness to reflect the goodness of the kingdom. Are we being intentional with those things? We need both, don't we? We need St. Francis, we need to hear him, and we need to hear St. Paul. Maybe we could think of them as our two witnesses. Word and deed. They have to go together. There's always a cost to doing this stuff. There's a cost to being a witness, and there was for these two witnesses here in Revelation 11. You look at what happens to them. It started really well. They went on this little preaching tour, and it was going great for a while. And then afterwards, in verse 7, they, they finished their testimony, and this beast comes up from the abyss and attacks them and overpowers and kills them. We've all had that experience, haven't we? I haven't. But there is this beast that comes up. In Revelation 13, the beast is described uh, in much more detail, and we'll look at him there. But really, the beast in Revelation is a reference to the kingdom of Rome or the empire of Rome that persecutes the people of God. And there's a pretty clear reference here to the, the ways in which through the first century Rome would target Christians and would antagonize them and would persecute them. It was very difficult for those Christians, not just because of the government persecution that came upon them, but because of milder forms of persecution from families and, and colleagues. They were ostracized. It was a shameful thing in a lot of ways to be a Christian. And these two witnesses are killed for it. They're killed and their bodies lie in the square, the public square of the great city. I don't think that great city is, is probably a literal place. I think it's a reference to any place where there is hostility to the gospel, uh, any place where there's resistance to the gospel of Jesus. So that would include Sodom, and it would include Egypt, and it would include Jerusalem, where Jesus was crucified, and it would include Auckland, wouldn't it? Um, Auckland is a great city, but it's a great city where there's a great degree of antagonism towards the gospel and resistance 
toward Jesus. And, and as we live a life of witness in this great city, we can expect that we will go through a type of dying. In Greek, the word witness is the same word as martyr. It's exactly the same word. To be a witness is to be a martyr. It doesn't mean we're all going to be physically killed because of our witness, but it means that every time we live or speak witness, there is a kind of crucifixion. There is a kind of dying that goes on. And being faithful witnesses means being prepared to somehow share in that dying, even in the dying of Jesus, as we carry out this calling in the world. I remember in my old job, um, I invited a few of my colleagues to some church event. can't remember what it was. It was some outreach event that was going on, and I handed out a few invitations. There was one woman that I worked with who I was terrified of inviting. She was so anti, so anti-Christian, had no time for Christians at all, and she wasn't afraid to let people know about it. And I remember the day just my heart was pounding in my chest, and I just walked over so sheepishly and put my little invitation on her desk and invited her along to this event and she just was quite frosty and said, no thanks, I'm not a Christian. And I said, oh, that's okay, you could still come along. And then the invitation fell off her desk. So I had to pick it up and put it back on her desk. <laughs> sort of slunk away into the shadows. You know, I mean, I was just, di- I was dying on the inside. You know, you, you have those feelings of just, it's so awkward. It is uncomfortable. It feels, it feels yuck. None of us like being in those situations. This, I think, is the type of, of dying that we often experience um, very few of us are going to experience physical persecution. This is our martyrdom, is the social awkwardness of talking about Jesus, is maybe the social ostracizing that you are excluded from certain social groups who think of you as a Jesus freak now. It's being prepared for those costs. It's worth remembering, though, that really is nothing compared to what our brothers and sisters in the faith have endured over many centuries in the history of the church, including the first century. And it's certainly nothing compared to what the true and faithful witness Jesus had to endure because of his witness. We're never going to be called to that. A little bit of social discomfort is not a huge price to pay in the whole scheme of the history of the church and the response that people have had to the gospel. But nevertheless, it's a form of dying. It's not very nice, but it's the cost of being a witness. It's being prepared to pay that cost, to take that price and to push through a little bit of that social barrier in order to speak a word, to tell a bit of our story, to represent our faith faithfully in conversations that we come across. And at the same time as there's a dying and witnessing, there's also a rising. In this very next scene, these witnesses, after three and a half days, the breath of life enters them, and they stand on their feet. They're resurrected. And again, because this is a parable, I don't think we need to say, This is some future event that's going to happen one day. I think this resurrection is what happens every time people witness. Every time that we faithfully say or demonstrate the kingdom of heaven, there is a type of resurrection. There's a breath of life that God gives us. I experienced that even when I put that invitation on my colleague's desk and invited her along and then slunk away into the shadows. It was awful and there was a dying, but there was also resurrection because there's that breath of life that enters you and you realize this is so close to the heart of God. God loves lost, lost sheep, lost people. And he's so pleased with our puny little efforts. Even though they're stumbly, bumbly steps along the way, he's so pleased, so proud of us when we just take a little step, be a little brave, say a word, and represent our Lord, Jesus, 
in ordinary ways in our own lives. God's just so pleased. And there is that breath of life, isn't there, that enters you. It's the breath of life of confidence too. You realize, I can do this. I can say this. I can represent this faith faithfully in my workplace, in my home, at my gym, wherever you are. It's the breath of life, that resurrection of knowing I'm participating in the great story. I'm part of God's building a new kingdom in the midst of an empire. I'm on mission with God. And I'm just nowhere closer to his heart than I'm reaching out to the lost people that his heart just breaks for in the world. That's the breath of life. That's resurrection. So there's dying with witnessing, but there's also rising. And isn't it funny the way that this story just mirrors so closely the dying and the rising of Jesus? You look at what happens to the witnesses and their death, and then three and a half days later, they rise again. It's like the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus has been overlaid onto the story of these witnesses to show us that when we live faithfully as witnesses in our worlds, we're in some ways participating in Jesus' own death and own resurrection. Reminds me of the words of Paul in Philippians 3 where he says, I want to know Jesus and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings so that I might share in his resurrection. We die with Jesus when we witness. We carry around in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might be made known in other people. And isn't this one of the greatest examples of lamb power that we saw Jesus embodying back in Revelation 5? That strength that comes through self-giving love. And now John's saying to his readers, there's no better way for you to demonstrate this lamb power than through living faithful lives of witness. There's weakness. There's dishonor. There's foolishness in the eyes of the world. But great strength in God's eyes. Great power. And great effectiveness too. You never know how the witness is going to turn out, do you? And you look at what happens in the wake of these witnesses' testimony. There was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapses. But look at what happens to the people who aren't killed. They give glory to the God of heaven at the end of verse 13. You know, this is the first time in Revelation there's been any hint of repentance. There's been a lot of judgments, and we're explicitly told sometimes that it hasn't led to repentance. But only now, when the church steps on the scene and lives out faithful witness, when these two witnesses representing the church undertake their calling in the world, suddenly we start to see repentance. Suddenly we see people giving glory to the God of heaven. What's made the difference? It's the witness of the church. In fact, if you read Revelation up to this point, these witnesses actually reverse the whole flow of God's judgment. With the seven seals, a quarter of the earth's population is wiped out. With the seven trumpets, a third of the earth's population is wiped out. But you get to the witnesses, it all rolls back to just a tenth. It's like the tide's gone back out again. Because the church has stepped into the gap and has witnessed faithfully and has proclaimed the truth and embodied the truth. And evil is being pushed back. And there's fewer people to be the subject of God's uh, punishment. Because this message is going forth and lives are being changed. It's because of the church's witness. You never know what's going on when you witness. You never know what effects this might have in people. And People may not come to Christ before your eyes, but you can be assured that as we witness, God is always working. He's always moving. He's always stirring hearts, and he's always prompting consciences, and he's always lifting the veil, and he's always knocking on the door of people's lives. He's always at work, just often in ways that you don't see. There's another girl that I studied with. All these stories seem to be about women. But um, 
there was another girl that I studied with at AUT and uh, I invited her along to church a couple of times and one of those times that I invited her along was a time that I was preaching. I was just starting to get interested in preaching and I had a few opportunities through my church so I invited her along one of those times and amazingly enough she came but she absolutely hated it. I mean, and she told me. She did not hold back. She just disagreed with so much of what I'd said in this message. She was really unhappy with it, really just took me to task over it. And I just thought, man, this is curtains, you know, so much for my faithful witness. She's just responded the other way. But interestingly, she told me all of that while sitting at the opening dinner of an Alpha course, which she had come along to. So it's like she's giving me this message that she's just not interested in, in what I'm saying. But then at the same time, she keeps showing up. She kept coming back and she went through the Alpha course. And not really much seemed to happen as a result of that and life went on. And then one day, I remember, we were having coffee on High Street in the city and she turned to me and said, I joined your club last night. And I thought, what club are you talking about? (laughs) And she'd become a Christian. She'd become a follower of Jesus. Just in the quietness of her own bedroom, before God had just given her life over to Jesus and joined the club, as she put it. And she started coming along to to the church a little bit, and and eventually one day she gave her testimony in church, and she talked about how one of those early times when I'd invited her along to church, she wasn't planning on coming, but she just felt compelled to be there. She just felt literally like she had to go, and she came along, and it triggered a series of events that ended up with her giving her life to Jesus. And man, it was so encouraging for me just to know God is always working. And I didn't see it, and I couldn't have picked it. I didn't have enough faith to believe that would ever happen. But God was at work. And I know that not all of your stories end that way, because not many of mine do either. That's the exception. We know that, all right? It's not that everybody's going to suddenly throw up their hands and sing hallelujah. But you need enough of those stories just to keep you energized and believe that God is working, whether you see it or not. And you're sowing seeds that might be watered generations from now. You don't know where that person is going to be or go in their life. You don't know what crisis they may encounter that might lead them to ask questions they're not even asking now. You don't know what they might remember of your life later on, long after you've exited their life. You don't know how much they're noticing what you do and what you say now. You don't know the power of your words and the power of your witness, but it is powerful and God's using it and he is working on the other side of the fence, whether you see it or not. So take courage from that and take confidence from that, that witnessing in both word and deed is powerful and effective and participates in bringing God's kingdom to earth in all kinds of ways. So let's follow the words of St. Francis and allow our lives to do the talking, to allow our lives to be a witness. Let's also follow the words of St. Paul and allow our words to be a witness, to talk and speak boldly the name of Jesus to people around us. But above all, let's follow the true and faithful witness, Jesus. Let's emulate his life and be signposts to people around us of the goodness and the beauty and the possibilities of the kingdom of heaven that's taking shape through our Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, you have called us to be witnesses. Jesus, I know for myself this is not something I find easy. I feel like I stumble along the road. I feel like I don't always represent you that well. But I thank you so much, God, that in spite of my feebleness, you're working. And you're just so pleased when we take a step. You're just so proud of us when we open our mouths and speak something that represents you 
and speaks forth the truth of your message and your gospel. You're so pleased with it. You're so delighted in it. So God, I pray for everyone here. Holy Spirit, breathe fresh courage upon us. You haven't given us a spirit of timidity. You've given us love and you've given us power and you've given us self-control. You've given us the boldness to be your witnesses. So in our worlds, Jesus, we pray that you would enable us to be faithful witnesses of you, the true and faithful witness. Thank you for this invitation, hard as it is. We pray that we would fulfill it in your strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.